I always hear companies saying the exact same five words as a, a, a signal of their strategy or stra- people are like, we don't need strategy. We know like we are here to democratize X or we're here to make the world better. And they say like, here, our strategy is we're human, we're accessible, we're empathetic, we're transparent, we're warm. I'm like, that is not a strategy. <laughs> You are listening to One More Question, a podcast by the people of Nice Work. One of the things we often catch ourselves saying is, can we ask you one more question? This podcast is all about sharing that, the best conversations we've had with significant brand builders, experts, and communicators. The people that we've encountered as we go about our work of making people care by creating impactful brands. Season three is focused on unpacking the topic of branding. We talk to people who design brands, own brands, build brands, and even those who hire for brands. We explore what brands look like and how they behave across a wide spectrum, from world-renowned brands with massive budgets like Spotify to companies that are making big waves on small budgets. If you're looking for insights on the best ways to invest in and build your brand, this is the season for you. I'm your host, Ross Drakes. Today on the podcast, I talk to Corinne Fiery. With less than 15% of global creative agency leaders are women, Corinne is definitely one of them. She's developed a unique take on the word design by working at Collins, IDEO, Google Creative Lab, Imaginary Forces, and even did a residency in VR through Stanford. In 2021, she launched her own studio, Sovereign Objects, a brand and innovation firm working in arts, culture, and science. Her aim is to reimagine economic and organizational models that redistribute prosperity. In the podcast, we talk about the lost art of emotion and branding, and the fact that words are really important, how to use values to sell, and motivating people with purpose. Enjoy. Karine, thank you so much for for joining us on the um, podcast. It's an honor to have you here. My pleasure, Ross. And I think it's... It's a um, testament to, to human ingenuity that we pulled this off. I think we moved this interview like six or seven times, but here we are. True, true. It happened. It is happening right now. And it, you know, let's see what comes of it. <laughs> so, so I'm very interested, you know, you've, you've come out of, uh, your background's very interesting. You've, mm. you've worked at some of the biggest name companies in the world, like IDEO, and now most recently Collins, and you've sort of left that world and are mm. pursuing your own projects, which I find very interesting. And in our in our pre-call, mm. you, you were talking about the idea that you're really interested in the idea of emotion or the, the lost art mm. of emotion. Can you talk a little bit about how you, you think about that and, and what it means to you? Well, I think having worked across a lot of different sectors of design, you know, and everything from IDEO, which focuses a lot more on human-centered design. And what I loved about it is it felt like you were a journalist and everything that you do, you could go into people's houses and see how they lived and go explore kind of foreign lands and understand the culture in a way that you never could from kind of ordinary desk research. And so you just are steeped in the realities of people's motivations and in their needs in a way that for me as a designer, I always care about like what's meaningful here. Um, And having left that and kind of gone back to some more kind of traditional, well, I don't want to say traditional agency world, but kind of brand world again, I think 
what's amazing about that is they really weave together inputs going into design around culture, around consumer, around the category, but most specifically also the company itself. And I think oftentimes that can get lost when brands are thinking about how we're representing ourselves in the world. And that relies on really knowing who you are as a company, founders, as a team, as a culture, and making sure that you're not just kind of designing answers in service of what everybody else needs, but recognizing that there's a Venn here and like we have to give a shit and our employees have to give a shit about the things we give a shit about. And so how do you kind of triangulate all of those factors in a way that leads to kind of really clear and strong priorities? And I think sometimes where I get disappointed for lack of a better word is when I don't see that those, those internal drivers, you know, those emotional drivers, even for teams, for consumers being kind of clarified to the extent um, to which it can really draw the best out of everybody that's working on these and contribute something more meaningful to the world. I think the idea of like move fast and break things is a prime example of this, where it's just like, we need to win, we need to get something out in the world and there's less intentionality around the why or that why might live at a really high level. Like our mission is to democratize X or to make the world better or to connect people it's like, that's not enough for designers and for people to like hold on to when they're going through an actual interaction or putting something out in the world, you need more like connective tissue. And I think that that's where nuance, specificity and clarity really start to show up in the kind of emotional aspect because a functional, you know, any great brand is a, a convergence of both functional and emotional components, right? Like, and some band, brands can win on that functional piece alone. They have something radically new. Nobody else is doing it. Well, yeah, you can like get out of the gate pretty quickly there because you're the sole offer. But like there's fast followers often. And that's where kind of the emotional core of a company, of a brand, of its people can really kind of maintain the um, advantage in the long term. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, you know, and the, the two examples that pop into my mind is, you know, I think Facebook is one of those companies, which is an example of how it seems like along the way they've lost that purpose and we're starting to feel this like backlash. And then the other one, I was reading this fascinating story about the Bumble IPO and how that brand and that product is just imbued with like meaning and the sincerity and, you know, it, it's, it's almost like two different worlds. Um, and, and I think it's uh, potentially it is that disconnect of emotion in those, those brands. I think Facebook got caught up in its own data and its own right. reach and its own power. And that was kind of became the driving force. And I think Bumble is still quite dear about providing something for, which I think comes from the founder that she had an experience that was just deeply un unpleasant. And she was mm -hmm. like, well, if I had this experience and obviously other women like me are having a very similar thing and the mm -hmm. success of the product is, I think, testament to that connection, that emotional thing that people made very quickly and, and allowed them to grow. And in theory, a competitor like Tinder should have just been too big for somebody mm -hmm. like Bumble to even grab a hold, but right. yet it did anyway. Right. I mean, I think there are a few factors to that. You know, one, you talked, I, I know less about the founding story of Bumble, Bumble, but I do know as a female 
founder and a lot around kind of female empowerment and the way that its ethos drives what it puts out into the world. But I think something we like to think about, you know, when I was at Collins was the enemy. And, you know, when you're putting together your brand strategy, thinking about like, what is the thing that you're pushing up against the world? You know, I think a lot of companies will focus only on the positive, you know, like we believe X and and those are great. Those are important things. But I personally even drive a lot of motivation from what I want to change and what I'm frustrated with or even angry at. And so, you know, much like a hero's journey, it's like every hero has an enemy, whether it's some an enemy that's an ogre and you can see it and feel it and taste it or an enemy like, um, you know, inequality and whatnot that is a more intangible, but they are nevertheless. And so I think that they were able to capitalize that on that, both in their internal culture and how they like shaped what they put into the world. And that's a really powerful, you know, force to be kind of aware of in the channel. And I think the other thing is how do you scale that, right? Like Facebook, a lot of the challenges is just massive now. And we, we see oftentimes it's a lot easier to kind of contain the why you're doing something when you're a smaller company and, you know, people have that maybe clarity or they've gotten on board because they would just really know what they're there to do. But as you scale, it's harder to scale that culture, the rationale, the motivation. And so I think there's some folks that are really focusing on that. My friend um, Bailey, for instance, with her company, People & Co., who you should interview for sure. Um, you know, they she was one of the first, I think, five employees at Instagram and has, you know, been somewhat vocal about her critiques of social media and how they've moved away from really thinking about the purpose of community and community engagement, both externally and internally. And I think the companies that understand, A, why they're doing something, the values that support them, the change they're seeking in the world, what they're pushing up against, and then know how to clearly and continuously communicate that internally and externally, you know, are just building on those emotional drivers in a way that as I mentioned earlier, is quite powerful and often gets lost. Mm. I think we're seeing a lot of sort of COVID showing up these gaps. And I think the companies that have thrived in, in this time, I think, are the ones that are held together quite strongly like that because I think human beings are, are inherently survivalists, but we need some sort of some sort of North Star. And I think if you look at the only other time there have been these kind of big pandemics is often when there's a very visible enemy, you know, so something like World War II is a very good right. example right. and how the British held themselves together with an identity and, a, you know, like, and they were fighting against evil. There were these like big concepts and that's what allowed all of them to survive what would have broken most Mm-hmm. Most people was this sort of concept that was being held on. And I think from the American side, they were being held together by this idea of we are fighting for the right and democracy. And, you know, these are the concepts that allow people to do that. And I think company purpose is is that on a small scale. It's like work is hard. And it probably always <laughs> yeah. will be hard. And, it's called labor you know, for a reason. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And and what is like what is keeping me motivated? What is driving me? You know, and I think if it just comes down to money, that can get old very quickly, and you lose that sort of meaning. So I think uh, I'm fully with you that 
people who understand that work harder. And I think that feeling then permeates the brand and it permeates every interaction people have with the company. Mm-hmm. Um, and that allows the, the consumers or the customers of that brand to actually feel a little bit of that kind of coming at them and therefore identify with it. Right. They reap the rewards too. And I think also you, you should see it show up and even the decisions of, you know, whether they're interactions or in real person experiences, whatnot. And I think for me, you know, to kind of touch on something we were talking about earlier, it's like, we all, I always hear a company saying the exact same five words as a, a, a signal of their strategy or people like, we don't need strategy. We know like we are here to democratize X or we're here to make the world better. And they say like, here, our strategy is we're human, we're accessible, we're empathetic, we're transparent, we're warm. I'm like, that is not a strategy. (laughs) That That is not a strategy. And everybody else is saying the same thing. And you know, you know, brand is also about thinking about what, what makes you unique, right? So when everybody's saying the same thing, and everybody is creating brands around those same words that a don't, don't kind of clarify a purpose. I think, to be clear, I respect those values, you know, like, yes, I want a company to be accessible and open and inclusive. Yes, I want a brand to be, you know, warm and not off-putting. But the difference, again, is in the nuance. A great example, I think we spoke about this a little bit before, is like, you can't argue with empathetic, right? It's like, yeah, that's emotional intelligence. We want to be empathetic in the world. But again, like, what the F does that mean to you and your business specifically? when you're communicating out into the world, for example. So we had, you know, imagine a client that is in telehealth around, you know, therapy, for lack of a better example. It's like, yeah, empathetic is going to mean listening well. It's going to be making somebody feel safe. It's probably, you know, you're going to kind of give more information and probably create a brand or an atmosphere that feels soothing and warm and, you know, can, can help people relax and feel there's less stress. That might be empathetic in that context. Another brand, for instance, might be in like, you know, digital ops, where it's like your website goes down, you're losing millions of dollars by the second, and your IT team has to fix that stuff. And they're following protocols that have to do like EMT emergency response. Empathetic in terms of clearly solving the problem in that situation is like, as little information as possible, as clear as possible, no ornamentation, like get me what I need so I can take action. There's everybody knows what the latest action was and what is next. And those are totally different versions of empathetic. But I think that that, again, like that kind of level of specificity and clarity as to how that relates back to you as a company and what you're trying to do and offer to the world gets kind of lost in I don't know, generalism or maybe like not being kind of passed on, trained, change of leadership, et cetera. And so that's that's where I kind of am often trying to push companies to be like, what do you mean by this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> do other people on your team know what you mean by this? How is that unique to you? And how does that inform the way we design you know, your systems, the way you speak, the, what you're trying to implicitly communicate in the world and how you show up in terms of just like principles of behavior. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I always say to my clients that words are important and mm. like very specific words, like exactly like you say, when we say growth, what do we mean? Exactly. And, and do we understand that? Do our customers understand that? Because that word can mean so many different things. Um, mm-hmm. And I think these are often elements of branding that people take for granted. You know, they, they forget that that language can mm-hmm. be the difference of one thing and another. You know, mm-hmm, and I, I think mm-hmm. spending the time and the intention on understanding that takes you much further in the long run because it allows you to to own that meaning and to own those words and to to kind of fill them up over time with interactions and. You have to pour meaning into your words, right? And I think sometimes you have to look at it. You might have a good starting place, but let's like fill that container. And a few, two metaphors that I think have been helpful in talking about that with customers is one, you know, we can make a beautiful arrow for you. Ben, my colleague, Ben Crick came up with this one who I enjoyed your interview with him, by the way. Um, He's like, we can make a beautiful arrow, but if we don't have a target, you know, it's kind of purposeless. Another one I heard the other day from the head of people at Miro, Vanessa, she said, like, we can build, um, we can land the plane, but we might end up at the wrong runway. You know, so again, it's those two things together that make for a powerful kind of, um, um, I don't know, story in the world. And I find that companies... I don't know why. I think a lot of it has to do oftentimes with the scale of companies we're working with, you know, cross-functional teams or even the organizational structure of the teams. There's not necessarily communication going across them. Maybe the business priorities aren't really clear in terms of who, how they're growing, the target audiences they're going after or how they've changed as a business. Because I think we forget that businesses do change. And that's something we're thinking about a lot when it comes to brand. It's like, it used to be this idea that like brand was like, fixed, you know, you can own this brand for 20 years and, you know, like nobody else will look with you. Now it's very easy for there to be kind of somebody that's mimicking you within a year. And we've seen that a lot. Um, so I think we have to reevaluate what we mean by that kind of having differentiation, but also recognizing that brands are living things. They will continue to go. Your priorities will grow. And how do you hold on to some kind of core elements of the brand that are always recognizable, but build in flexibility into those systems to say, we're going to change these things in our system are going to change with us so that we can evolve naturally as every company, every person, every ecosystem would. Yeah. And I think this is where, this is where, data and and these kind of these tools that people like to hate on like facebook and stuff are actually really valuable because they Mm. give you that that input you know you set up your brand beautifully and you start the journey and you put it out there and then you start to receive all these signals back and you can like you say you can adjust and evolve your your company and your brand and your product and your service if you are listening and filtering and, yeah. and understanding, I think that's a huge opportunity for, for companies. A hundred percent. But I would say that the thing not to forget in that, you know, inputs is again, like intrinsically, where do you stand as a company? Mm. Because I've seen and heard a lot of, you know, very well-known leading edge companies that are driving not just their industry, but, you know, the world being like we're, you know, data centric, data informed. And sometimes what that means to me and the way that I hear it 
especially when evaluating brand, is just like, we're going to do whatever the customer wants. And again, I don't think that that's a very strong position because you have to say, well, what are we here to do as a company? And how do we, again, kind of recognize the trade-offs may be inherent? Like, it's great to learn from your audience and great to learn from people and recognize that they are making you successful. And you can always improve yourself as we all can as individuals. But I think oftentimes what gets lost is that other piece. And that requires kind of constant attention and internalization of that intention um, that I think is easy to get lost. Definitely. I mean, the, the the company that keeps popping up in my head is Patagonia, and mm, sure, you know they they've stuck to they've stuck to that for decades. You know, right. they've they've imbued it into what they are, and I think they engage with people a lot, but they're also very clear on who they are and mm-hmm. what they stand for and where mm-hmm. their line is. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually just did an exercise for myself, you know, because now that I've broken out on my own, I. I'm in a position to say, what do I want to put into the world and how am I assessing kind of fit criteria with clients to make sure that I'm honoring that for myself? Like I have a lot of energy to give. I have a lot of talent to give and I want to make sure that it's, I do think that companies and individuals, you know, are struggling to figure out how they can make a dent in a world that feels, um, a, very complex, <laughs> and B, kind of difficult to make change. We all know that change is possible, but you know, I think the role of enterprise is increasingly um, affecting the, the way that the world operates. And so you're seeing it bottom up from within companies, right? Employees kind of demanding more of their employers. And so I'm holding the same for myself. And I think hopefully in a way that can even set an example for other companies, be like, are you doing this? You know? Mm-hmm. And so I would love to share some of those with you because I think that yeah, I'd love to, I'd love um, to understand the process. Like how, how did you, what did you, how did you go about doing this? Because how, if, if somebody wanted to emulate that work, what would it look like? Well, I started by setting up an accountability buddy. <laughs> so somebody else who I know is thinking about these same questions and we are like, okay, let's write down, you know, how we're starting to think about that set up time to make sure that we were sharing those with each other. And then I began let me just pull it up. Um, I began by kind of doing a bit of reflection on just my own values, right? Like, but not limited to values. Again, I think you have to kind of triangulate in between. I was like, how do I want to grow as an individual right now? Like that motivates me and is part of just how I've always made changes in my career. But then also how do I need to grow as an individual, right? We're always learning things about ourselves and I need to keep that in mind around myself. Um, Here we go. Also, let's see. What are the things that energize me just as a human? You know, I think I've started that evaluation a while ago and that could just be in like how you engage with the day. You know, like I know that being out in the world, like on my feet, talking to people, things that are relational is very engaging for me. Um, as is, you know, collaborating with friends and learning new things, you know, so recognizing that that's going to draw the best out of me is important. What is my enemy? You know, again, I was like, what are the things that I'm really frustrated against? Because that's a source of energy for me. It might not be for everybody. And also like, what is my duty 
you know, what are the strengths that I have that I think are particularly unique and how do I have some maybe obligation to tap into them to make that change in a way that, um, I don't know, I think I am somewhat obliged to do. There was a good quote. I don't know if you've seen the Dr. Ruth documentary, but it's, it's worth one. It's a worthwhile one. She says, I have an obligation to myself to live large and make a dent in this world. So, you know, kind of had to reflect on that. So it's kind of just swimming in those things and saying, well, what does that mean for how I start to kind of articulate and prioritize the kind of work that I'm going to put? So, you know, number one, I had like 15 criteria. We don't have to go through them all, but you can have an example. Mm. <clears throat> you know, a basic one, we're seeing this emerge a lot, but is your leadership at least 50% minority? That's actually like a higher, you know, standard than say what the average population spread is. But I am really, you know, invested in that, particularly as a female. I think there's less than 5% of executive creative female leads in our industry. And I'm not going to lie, I've like experienced the frustrations that come with the glass ceiling. And I think um, <clears throat> I'm more invested than that ever to try to kind of create some equilibrium there. And others around, you know, are you as a company putting solutions in the world that advance some of the things that I really care about? Number one, advancing the arts. That could be inclusive of film, journalism, whatever. But I feel like the arts are essential to progress. They're essential to like the human experience. And they are, as they've always been, like struggling to survive for many facets. So I care about that. Advancing science. You know, we've seen science under threat, especially over the last few years. And I think it just mm. is in so many ways, like inherent to some of the same principles of art, of discovery and wonder and help kind of bring us forward. So that's of interest to me. And we've all recognized that science could use some more brand or visual love. <laughs> think at, least, at least how the community could be improved. Like, how do we um, make science sexy? Yeah, totally. <laughs> and like a few others, <clears throat> I'll give three more. You know, one, I'm just really interested in alternative hierarchies right now. So um, are you experimenting with that in a company, in your org structure, in your investing structure, uh, in your ownership model, et cetera? Like, how are you maybe reexamining um, things that have already been done? <laughs> Same with economic models. I think that there's a lot of interesting kind of developments there. And if it's built in a way that is specifically about kind of redistributed prosperity and wealth. I'm very interested in kind of amplifying those efforts. And also, you know, we talked about this a little bit with your wife's perfume brand, but as you know, I'm kind of interested in learning from the senses. I think as our worlds become more virtualized, we're kind of disassociated with our bodies and there's so much knowledge to be gained from our bodies. Even technology, it tries to mimic the brain, but it supremely falls short of the mm. like sophisticated complexity of that. And so I'm more interested in learning from the body and from nature. So anything that maybe has to do with drawing attention to the senses and learning from those kind of um, physical, organic, complex structures and the intuitive kind of elements of it that maybe are harder to measure, but equally kind of profound in our day are like very, very interesting to me. And also just like take me out of my head <laughs> for a few minutes, you know, and put me like in this other way of knowing. I mean, I think, I think there's some, 
some great lessons, not just for people, but I think for companies too, like understanding these things from the inside, you know, knowing what your purpose is, knowing what your principles are, what you want to do, then allows you to, to, to find that thing and to actually go and do that work. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we went through a process of nice work through the last sort of year and a bit of really thinking about the kind of work that energizes us and the kind of clients that energize us. Mm -hmm. And we've actually gotten a lot more specific and we start saying a lot, no, a lot more. And what's happened is we now attracting more exactly. of that kind of work because people are like, Oh, so you don't do that. So no, I'm not interested in touching that. They're like, oh, but you do do this. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. I've got a friend who needs that exact thing. So now that we've kind of drawn our line in the sand saying that if you're not interested in building, you know, a kind of purpose-driven company and impactful brand, yeah. we're not the company for you because we're not right. going to do the right work. We're going right. to, we're going to be pushing things onto you that you're not going to want mm -hmm. and we're not going to enjoy the work. And mm -hmm. the result has been amazing. Like the kind of clients you're starting to get now are helping the uninsured people. There's a lot of people in South Africa who don't have medical insurance. So they've created a product. We can't legally call it medical insurance, but it's like insurance for people who can't afford it. Now that's something my team would work on every day. They'd stay up until three in the morning with a smile on their face. Because when they think about the project and they think about the brand, they're like, this is phenomenal. And this mm -hmm. is exactly what we want to do. And this is a stamp that I want to put my personal you know, I want to put my personal name on this and, and therefore the client is feeling that energy and they're going, wow, these people are doing the most amazing work and they're so energized and they're so excited and therefore they're going to speak to other people. And I think it creates that sort of perpetual motion. Mm -hmm. um, and, mm -hmm. and what I enjoy about it is it, it's right for me and it's right for my team, but it doesn't have to be right for you. You can be off here doing your own thing. Like that's that's your thing. And I think one of the challenges that brands have fallen into is this idea of I need to scale and therefore I need to appeal to everyone as opposed to going, you know what, like I'm going to, I'm going to stick to my knitting. I'm going to appeal to my group of people and I'm just going to do that phenomenally well. And I think that's one of the most powerful lessons or messages that people who own brands and companies can hear is like, be super specific about what's important to you and therefore who do you serve because i think that can be a game changer for sure you're a beacon in that sense like the more kind of clear you are about what you want to put into the world the easier it is for people to find you and whether you're fit or not they can tell you know it, it, people want to put a frame around you i think for better or worse that you know has has kind of pros and cons, but it's easier mm. to then say, go talk to my friend, Ross, you know, go talk to Corinne, go talk to whomever, because that's, they really care about that. <clears throat> and I think that, um, that attitude, as you mentioned, does kind of inspire folks internally because every project is, you know, tough and challenging, especially when you're dealing with the complexities of brand and large companies and the subjective as a whole. Um, so you need that kind of anchor motivation, I think. And it doesn't necessarily have to be like social impact work, right? Like that's a very, I think, in my mind, this goes beyond that. It's just like, what do you care about? Period. That could be anything. It doesn't have to be inherently quote unquote good. I mean, good is subjective anyway and highly contextual. So just like put your stakes in the ground. But I think as you mentioned earlier, yeah, like we see... Or I've seen a lot of companies 
much like the way they define their audience now. It's like, we're for all. It's like, you are not for all. You know, like <laughs> some, com- some rare companies are unfortunately for all. But that kind of like slow deterioration of kind of a sense of who is this for and why is it for them um, leads to generalization. And I think that generalization isn't doing anybody any favors, you know, and companies are quite nervous to put that line in the sand, right? Because it means like we might lose some people, but I've done some interviews. I don't know if you saw the one with Cora, uh, Molly Hayward at Cora and others, but I'm really trying to show case women in particular, female leads who are like, I don't care if I piss some people off, (laughs) you know, in fact, like if I piss some people off, there's other people that are going to love me more. And because Mm -hmm. they just understand what I'm about and therefore, you know, are able to kind of align their values with my values as a company. And even they put out an ad, I remember it was around some threats to abortion rights here in the States. And so they banded with a few other kind of feminine care brands to put out a full page ad in the New York times saying like, we support, we support pro choice. And that was because like they did, they're like, we don't want to be political as a company, but this very much tethers to like what we stand for as a brand, a brand can't really be apolitical a little bit right now. And they're like, yeah, we, we lost some customers, but we also gained new ones. Mm. And I think that like those that are willing to go there, that it doesn't have to be on such a charged issue, you know, but like will benefit from the kind of loyalty of customers in a way. Um, and that just requires understanding clearly, like who, who is this for? Yeah, is it not also, I mean, is is there not an opportunity to flip the narrative? Because I think people, when you think of it, you're like, I'm coming at this from a place of lack, like I'm going to lose out on something, mm-hmm. as opposed to thinking of it like differentiation is one of the hardest things to achieve. Like proper, true differentiation is so hard for companies mm-hmm. to do. And it's so expensive if you're trying to differentiate in the wrong place, mm-hmm. if you be the best version of you and the most clear version of you and you, you send that signal out, it is such a good differentiator. And like you say, so many of these brands are copied instantaneously because they're not differentiating. They found like a gimmick or a quirk or a something right. and they're differentiating on that. So then somebody else can be like, well, I'm also that quirk or I also have that thing. But if you're mm-hmm. differentiating on, you know, look at like a Tesla mm-hmm. versus all of the other electric vehicles, he's elevated that into a space where if you compare product to product, it's actually probably not one of the best cars in the market. <laughs> Yet the perception of it is is much, much higher. And I think mm-hmm. it's you know, that, that's a big example, but I think for, for small and medium-sized companies, it's such an opportunity to sort of carve out a chunk that you, the bigger competitors can't do. They, mm-hmm. can't, they can't risk, you know, for the big guys to risk losing, you know, a billion people right. is huge for you. You're like, I don't have them yet, so I'm not, like, I'm not risking it. I'm actually just going to secure a... Right. a really good toehold to start growing from properly. Right. And I think a lot of that, again, comes down to like the economic models, right? So if you're VC backed and you have certain kind of shareholder obligations, right? Like how much you can hold true to those personal values or interests might be mm. under threat. So that's why I'm also interested in saying like, well, you know, B Corp is a prime example here where you say, actually, we're equally responsible to the earth, <clears throat> 
uh, as we are to our investors and, and our, our employees. And so I'm very curious to see what other kind of mechanisms there might be in the world to kind of reorient some of those um, incentive structures so that you know people can really kind of hold true to that as much as possible. And I think a total deviation, but a differentiation is something I think about a lot, you know, because it's just feels lost. And, and, you know, culturally, I'm not very inspired. I don't know, maybe it's just because I'm over 40 now. And I just like, don't get what's going on with a lot of other things. Like I'm not in the game space. And um, I'm trying to get into Clubhouse, who knows, but I think that uh, what we see, there's a deep homogenization of brands, which for me is just like not very compelling. But also I think some of the trends we see is that those companies are largely led by product people and engineers and the metrics of success for those teams tends to be very different from how we think about the metrics of success for brand, you know, for product teams, it's often around like, is it fast? Is it lightweight? Is it building on existing mental models that people know, which is all about, you know, replicating the familiar with brand, you know, especially an increasingly crowded market, you know, a high attention economy where there's so much noise around us, you know, your job is to cut through the noise and to stand out and be memorable you're competing for cognitive space you know and ideally through that you you don't just kind of flash a light and people see you but you show something that resonates with them and drills itself into their emotional core right and that's that's the kind of um interest right you don't want to do that in a way that's manipulative i mean plenty do and that's kind of like the founding of advertising in many ways but those are very different kind of ideas of success. And I think we see fewer people, or I see fewer people that understand the way brand as you and I might describe it, which is something that's much more holistic, like an impression that lives in people's minds. And oftentimes I think it's seen as like a little function under marketing, right? But it lives above that. And I think that comes back to like, what are some of the structures within companies of where brand sits? You know, there's not really like CDOs or chief design officers at the C-suite level to kind of think about that per se. And Mm. also the word design means so many things to different people right now. I think design, even in the last 10 years, has become much more about like product design or UX design, you know, as opposed to you have brand design, you have advertising, you have all these different ways of thinking about human-centered design, which is a process, you know, and so there's kind of a lack of a shared vernacular around what we mean by design, what we mean by brand. Mm. Again, that comes back to context and clarity. Um, But also I think devaluation on some level of the subjective uh, because it's not very measurable or not as easily measurable, uh, especially brand, which is about time. You know, you could measure a brand today, tomorrow, but that doesn't mean (laughs) you want to look at it over time. And so I think companies struggle to kind of take that risk um, to recognize that we have to make decisions outside of how we know the impact will live on. Mm. Um, And so the language of data is very much kind of the source of um, power right now. And I think the subjective 
um, the beauty, the kind of uh, resonance that comes with a lot of our craft and visual design in particular needs to find a way to hold its ground <laughs> against such kind of measurable um, inputs. That's, I mean, I think, I think you've articulated it beautifully. Um, but I think saying that, I think it's, you know, we started talking about sort of emotion and story and words, and now we're talking about visual. And I think if we take it down to our core, human beings have been using visual communication and story. These are our most fundamental tools that we've used to communicate culture, to connect to people, to identify as a tribe, to create cultures, to create traditions, to build families, to build all these things are rooted in that. So I think it is a little bit of a, a lost art. And, and my, my hypothesis, or at least my hope, is that in, in the not too distant future, there'll be a little bit of a, a swing back in that direction. Because I think when everybody's going heavily into that data, it leaves space mm -hmm. for just mm -hmm. a really good story, just, mm -hmm. a, mm -hmm. just something that makes you smile, um, something that, that stands out, you know, beautifully from, from everyone else. And I think that's an opportunity for people who are building brands to, mm -hmm. to embrace that in, in a way where everyone's going down the Fiverr route, like cheapest design possible, yeah. you know, most, you know, like biggest get data, use cheap design, grow, scale, scale, scale. Yeah. Somebody else yeah. can take a step back and be like, you know what, I'm actually going to, try something different I'm right right approach and this differently and you know it's because it's hard to measure you know how people feel or also to just test that in general i mean yes there are ways to test that but <clears throat> for instance you know anytime we're doing a presentation i'm sure you've seen this a million times it's like you might show a direction and you can tell from somebody's face or just how quickly they spoke, how they feel about it. But when you actually ask them how they feel about it, you know, it might turn into a different type of cognitive process where they're like analyzing things in a way that kind of strips out that initial instinct. And so that that's where things start to go. You know, they're valuable. You, you want the analytical, but you also want that kind of raw feeling experience to kind of play into things. And I think that's where we struggle to find language. You know, it always has to become translated into words, but that's not necessarily the best kind of um, way to move forward in terms of how we make decisions. So I think, you know, we have to remember that. So I remember when I was in college, my, I had a, a bachelor's of arts, but the kind of discipline was called visual communications. And when I went, you know, later in my career, I was like, Ugh, I hate that title. You know, I, I want it to be like design or, you know, something sexier. But now, you know, kind of older in my career, I'm like, actually, visual communications is a really great way of understanding it. Like all of these things are mechanisms for communication. You know, we have a implicit associations, you know, there's this gestalt of these things. And that's true for scent and taste and dance, you know, they are ways of communicating with the world, much like the oldest cave art. Um, but we, we've lost that kind of lens of it for some reason. Now it seems like fluff or decoration or, you know, kind of, I don't know, in a way that I just feel so 
I'm like, there's so much value there. And we're like stripping away the value because we struggle to talk about it <laughs> and, and rationalize it. And that's just like one way of knowing rationalizing something is one way of knowing. And so how do we, especially when we're working with large companies that are averse to risk, who want like rationalization because it makes them feel more confident about, you know, the decisions they're making. It's like, how do you balance those two things and say, you know, that shock of red is going to, you know, get people to wake up. You know, that shock has value. Um, mm. And we shouldn't underestimate that. I think that's, I mean, it's a lovely note to to end the podcast on I think it's it's that challenge is you know if you are are engaging with with someone and they present something to you measure it analytically but also potentially just write down that gut feeling like what did what did it make you feel it's like another lens mm -hmm. to look at the same thing on and, and mm -hmm. then it's I think easier to sort of decide if it's right or, or wrong Thanks for listening. We believe that sharing knowledge is an obligation. So if you know someone who's building a brand or needs some inspiration for their brand, please share this podcast with them. This is our third season, and we'd be grateful if you'd hit that subscribe button so you're the first one to know when a new episode comes out. Or even better, leave us a review and tell the world how much you enjoy listening. This really helps. One more question is brought to you by the people at NiceWork. NiceWork is a purpose-driven company helping people who want to make a dent in the world by building brands that people give a shit about. We're based in Johannesburg, South Africa and serve companies around the world. If you'd like to know more, partner with us or make a suggestion, reach out at www.nicework.co.za And if you're one of those really old school people, send us a letter and we'll make you a mixtape.